0: We have turned the corner in the Gospel of John. We are in Passion Week. The first half I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the first half of the Gospel of John deals with the first three years of ministry of Jesus, and the last half of the Gospel of John deals with the, the last week of his life. And, uh, and so we're in Passion Week, and there's going to be a lot of fast, fantastic things there for us. There's going to be uh, a roller coaster, I think, even uh, emotionally for us. Um, but I want you to see in the last of this Passion Week, I want you to see the consistency of Jesus. And when we're going through times of turmoil or difficulty, uh, we can go up and down. And I want you to see how even keeled Jesus is—just his face set like flint to the cross, knowing that he's following his Father's will, doing what he's called, what he's been called to do. For this purpose, we see next week. For this purpose, I came. For this hour, Father, glorify Your name. He knows what he's been sent to do, and he's going to do it. It's just an amazing thing. The sermon titled today is an invitation to hate your life. Sounds weird, but Jesus says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And I want to know what that means this morning. What does it mean to hate your life? Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help and trust that he's going to give it. Holy Spirit, we need direction this morning. We need help. I thank you for all the children that are in this room. Jesus, you've told us that we are to look to children and be like them. For such belongs the kingdom. Help us to receive your word like they receive your word and just believe it. Hear it and believe it. Respond. And Jesus, I thank you that there's no A-League, B-League team here that we're all one in Christ, united in Christ, and we come just to hear and sit at your feet and listen and just learn from you this morning. And so help us. Help us to be changed. God, all of us walk through these doors and we have this desire, a gut level desire, to be maybe just a little bit different. We have this desire to be changed, sin to overcome, anxiety or depression or anger that we want to just lay here at the altar and walk away from. We want to be changed. So I ask this morning that you would change us. Change even who we are, our personalities. Some of our our personalities need to even be changed. Just help us to change. We want to honor you. We want to be more Christ-like. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask you to do that this morning. Help us to be more like Christ as we leave through these doors. Help us to rest assured of the finished work of Jesus, that even when we walk out of these doors, and if we fail this afternoon, because of what Christ has done for us, your favor still rests upon us. Help us to be assured of that truth. And so uh, lead us, I trust that you will, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, there are two huge truths that I just want to reintroduce you to this morning. Truth number one is that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. By grace, through faith. Not because of our works, not because we've done anything to earn salvation or earn God's grace. A grace earned is by default not grace. A love earned is by default not unconditional love. But God has given us both grace, unconditional love. We are saved by faith apart from works of the law. Titus says this in chapter 3, verse 5 of his book with his name. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy. So he saved us. He saved us. We didn't save ourselves. He saved us, not according, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. God has done something to us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God has saved us. It's God's work, not ours. So that's truth number one. We're saved by grace through faith. Salvation is 100% all of grace. It's not all or 99% of grace and 1% you. It's not uh, God's work and your work combined. This is God's grace 100% through and through, 100 proof grace. And it looks like something. When God's grace gets a hold of somebody, when God does a work in somebody's life, it looks like something. And here's truth number two from Luke 9, verse 23. And he, Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And then from our passage here this morning, John chapter 12, verse 25 and 26, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Salvation is clearly God's work. And we must lose our life, die to ourselves, and follow Jesus. Both of those things are true. They're both true. There is no... Salvation apart from following Jesus. You cannot be in Christ and not follow Him, not love Him, not want to obey Him. If you're in Christ, you want to obey Him, want to follow Him, want to, by His grace, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. This is a both and, not an either or. We good? Got it? Thumbs up? We're going to see this today, clearly. In John chapter 12. We're going to see a call to die to ourselves. We're going to see a call to hate our life. What in the world does that mean? On the tail end of Lazarus being brought back to life there starts a mini revival in Jerusalem. At least a so-called revival. I want you to see it in verse 9 through 11. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, this is, again, crazy. We saw this last week. We saw the response of two different groups of people. We saw Mary responding through prayer, through weeping, through tears, and wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair. And then we saw some of the Jews going to the Pharisees and telling the Pharisees what Jesus did. And they rise up and they want to kill Him. They can't handle it because they would lose their place and their nation. And so they wanted to sacrifice Jesus to keep their life. Andy pointed this out. For me, really clearly, kind of a parallel here in these two verses, which we'll get to in a little bit, but they wanted to sacrifice Jesus to keep their life. That's what they wanted. Where Mary, weeping, wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, learning from him, loving him, responds the right way. Well, the word continued to spread, and the city was just up, it was buzzing with excitement, and we saw a little bit even of that last week. But word begins to spread, and somewhat of a mini revival breaks out because there are people who are believing in Jesus and wanting to follow Him and wanting to come and see Him and coming to see Lazarus as well. And the same people that were upset from the first part of John chapter 12 are upset in the second part because they're wanting not just to kill Jesus, but now they're wanting to kill Lazarus. People are seeing Lazarus eat and joke and laugh, and walk the streets of Bethany. And now here we hear that he's maybe even in Jerusalem. People are looking at him and realizing we know that he's dead. Now many scholars believe that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were a family of means. Because they lived outside of the city of Jerusalem in Bethany. And many of the Jews were coming to the funeral, or coming to weep and wail with Mary and Martha and the family. So there are many people who believe that John, or that Lazarus and Mary and Martha were a family of, of means. They were well-known. And it would fit in well with this narrative because people are now hearing the man that was sick is now well. Jesus healed him and just word, It's just like wildfire. It's going everywhere. And they're hearing about this. Well, the Pharisees think we've got to do something about this, so we're going to put an end to this by killing Jesus and Lazarus. And then we'll keep our place and we'll keep our nation. They have to do something about it. Many people are going to Jesus. The chief priest can't handle it. Well, the revival even begins to spread more. And you see passion at the beginning of Passion Week. You see crowds and mobs of people who have been turned rather quickly. The same crowd just a week or two earlier that Thomas and the disciples warned, if you go, if you go there... They're going to kill you, Jesus. You can't go to Lazarus' house. That's too close to Jerusalem. They'll they'll kill you. They'll stone you. Don't you remember? They've been angry with you. And now, after this miracle, the whole city has been turned. The whole disposition, the whole posture of the city is now turned. And I want you to hear the things they're now saying about Jesus. I mean, this from anything that we can understand and through just visible demonstrations of what feels like power, this is a revival. We could say, my goodness, Jesus is gaining quite the following. Because now he's walking into the city and look at the change. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they picked up stones to kill him? No, they didn't pick up stones to kill him. Verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now this is interesting. Is it not? From stoning him to taking palm branches on Palm Sunday... Just the Sunday before they're chanting, crucify Him, on Friday. And they're laying down palm branches and they're making some pretty amazing confessions. They say, Hosanna, in verse 13. Hosanna, our God saves, or save us, O God. They say, blessed is He, blessed is Jesus, or praise be to Jesus they say that he's coming in the name of the Lord. No longer are they saying that he's doing these things in the name of Beelzebub. No longer are they saying that he's doing these things according to the enemy or according to his own flesh or in, other, in any other means. Now they're saying that he's, he's coming and doing these things in the name of the Lord. The city of, the, of Jerusalem has been changed. The crowds go from mass hysteria, anger, to beetles-like frenzy. This Jesus, Hosanna. The crowd's going to Him. The revival apparently is so big here in a second, the Pharisees are going to say the whole world has gone after Him. The whole world, really? Pharisees has gone after Him? What's happening at the beginning of Passion Week? They appeared to be believing in Him. They say that He's a king, the King of Israel. The King of Israel in verse 13. And... With all these words that are coming out of their mouth, they're right. These things are all true. Their words are saying true things about Jesus. Isn't he the one who saves? Hosanna, Hosanna. He is the God who saves us. Worthy of all our praises. He saves. That's what Jesus does. Is he not blessed? Is he not worthy of our praise? Hasn't he come in the name of the Lord? These are true confessions from the crowd. Isn't he truly the king of Israel? So I want you to consider this. Monday. Hosanna. Blessed is this Jesus. He's come in the name of the Lord. The city turned upside down. Sunday. Friday. Crucify him. How does that happen? How does that happen? Is it all natural? Or is there some supernatural things happening? Here's what we know about what's going on in Jerusalem we know that this is not real, even though their confessions were real. This is not real revival in this moment. Something supernatural is happening here. Let's continue on. Look at verse 12. The next day, or excuse me, verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Written as it has been written. Now, Passion Week was God's idea, it was God's plan. All of history was leading up to this week, and all of the future looks back to this week. Even when Christ returns, we will not forget this week of Jesus' life. It will never be forgotten in the praises of heaven, ever. Jesus was going as it was written. Jesus chose this. It had been written about. It was not an accident. It was not random. Jesus, although it was a sheep being led to slaughter, was not walking into this accidentally, stumbling forward. He could have got out of it. But the people at first were praising, singing his praises, Hosanna. Even the disciples did not understand what was going on. So, what, what was in the hearts and in the minds of the crowd in Jerusalem as they were saying Hosanna? What was going on in the hearts and the minds even of the disciples? Because apparently, even though they were with him, they did not understand what was going on. They didn't understand. They were confused. Even in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, the disciples are still confused. And they say to Jesus, they turn to him and they ask, Are you going to now restore your kingdom? They still believe in the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 6, I, I believe, and it's, it's not 6, it's verse 7, right there. They're still believing that Jesus is going to usher in this physical kingdom now. They're confused about everything that's happening. They had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel, even. When Jesus had died, and before the disciples knew that he was resurrected, in Luke 24, verse 21, the disciples say this But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The disciples in all of Jerusalem, they were confused still about what Jesus was there to do. They did not understand. But here's the deal. We have the unique opportunity this morning. Did anybody see the movie Sixth Sense? Remember years ago, like early 2000s? Okay. Now, if you haven't, spoiler alert, big time. But if you've not seen it yet, it's your fault. Tim Keller pulled this out years ago, and I heard him say it, and it just kind of always stuck with me. It's so good. When you're watching The Sixth Sense, if you remember the first time you watched it, you're just confused the whole time, and then the bomb drops at the end, and, you know, the kid's saying, I see dead people, and he's able to see Bruce Willis the whole time, and you find out at the end, oh my goodness, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time, and I didn't understand. I didn't understand. Has anybody seen The Sixth Sense two times? Okay, when you see it the second time, okay, when you see it the second time, you can't forget the ending, and when you see it and you're watching it, you're like, oh, oh my goodness, nobody's even talking to him, nobody's even looking at him, what's going on, like I see it now, how did I not see this the first time, like nobody's even paying attention to him, like they're like walking right past him, how did I not see this, okay, For us, and just like the disciples, they then remembered everything that was written about him. Now, we have the privilege, even with the power of the Holy Spirit, to look at this narrative, to to spend the next 15 weeks or so, 10 to 15 weeks, as we walk through Passion Week. And we get to connect these dots, and we get to see, and we are studying this and looking at this with knowing the ending already. And we don't have to wonder in the dark what's happening here. We get to see dots connected all over the place. The donkey, Dan just brought this out, the donkey riding in, and Jesus riding in on the back of a donkey. What's on the back of a true donkey, Dan? A cross cross on the back of a donkey. When was a donkey created? Before or after the cross? Before. Like there are these things here, and like neat things to be able to connect and look at. Oh, my goodness, it's here, and we get to see it. We get to watch it. We get to know the end from the beginning. And so we get to come to Passion Week. And we don't have to feel around in the dark and stumble forward. We get to know what Jesus is doing. And that is a privilege. A privilege indeed. And I want you to see the amazing things that happen next. Okay, the crowd begins to build. And I want you to see just Jesus' posture to all of this. And I want you to see how Jesus is not caught up with fake praise. We have viewed this a few times in the Gospel of John already. He is not impressed with fake revival. He simply isn't. And he is not concerned with the praises of people. He wants to honor his father. It's unbelievable. Look at verse 14. down through, Actually, we just read that. Look at verse 17 down through verse 22. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness the reason why the crowd went to meet him is that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you're gaining nothing now. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. The crowd was bearing witness. Listen. Listen. I knew Lazarus. He was sick. He wasn't just a little bit sick. He was deathly sick. And other people knew it as well. We went and saw him. I went and saw him. It was awful. He died. We were at the funeral. We cried. It was the fourth day. He couldn't have just simply been in a coma. He couldn't have been just not really dead. He was dead. We saw it. And he's alive. And they kept telling people, Lazarus, no, this Jesus brought him to life. It turned the hearts, apparently, at least initially it turned their hearts and put their attention on Jesus. The world had gone after them, that was the assessment of the Pharisees, and then we find that even some Greeks are coming and they're asking Philip, they're saying, Philip, can we, can we get some time with Jesus? We heard about the sign, it was amazing, it can't be explained, we simply want to talk with him. We want to ask some questions, we want to sit down with him. Things seem to be, in this moment, going pretty well for Jesus. No longer does he need to be stoned. Apparently, he doesn't need to be afraid about Jerusalem anymore. Imagine what the disciples are thinking. Wow, this is going to happen. It's going to happen. Like, he's going to restore Israel. He's going to do it. Look at this. The world's going after him. Like, it's not even... It's not even just Jerusalem now. There's Greeks that are coming after and asking questions. My goodness, look, what it, look what's happening, boys. Matthew, James, Peter, can you believe this? They're not wanting to stone him anymore. This is amazing. Look at the work of God. Behold, people are wanting to follow Jesus. This is it. We've turned the corner. Things are going to go well for Jesus. Things are going to go well for us. A.W. Pink says something in his commentary in the Gospel of John that's so profound. Let me just read it to you. Very different were the thoughts of Christ from those which most probably filled the minds of the disciples on this occasion. He looked, no doubt, to the distant future, but he also contemplated the near future. Death lay in Jesus' path. And this engaged his attention at the very time when the disciples were most jubilant and hopeful. There must be suffering before glory, the cross before the crown. Outwardly, all was ready for earthly glory. It was there for him. If he wanted it, here it is. Fake praise, false praise, it's at his feet. The multitudes had proclaimed him king. The Romans were silent, offering no opposition. A most remarkable thing. The Greeks were seeking Him, but the Savior knew that before He could set up His royal kingdom, He must accomplish the work of God. None could be with Him except He die. At the moment that everything seemed so hopeful, Jesus starts talking about death. Imagine how strange this discourse would be if you're a disciple, if you're these Greeks. Imagine how strange the words of Jesus would sound upon everything that you're witnessing, upon everything that you're observing. Upon feeling the excitement inside of you, this is a work of God. They just wanted to stone him and I just watched that same crowd lay down palm branches and say, Hosanna. And with that, Jesus' words, when he finds out the Greeks are wanting to come hear from him and to see him, here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Pause with me real quick. The glory that He had been receiving in Jerusalem is nothing compared to the glory of the cross. Explain that. The way God defines glory is so different than how man describes glory. Verse 24, truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Worldly praise is not glorious. Many people have a following. That's not glorious. Big deal. Anthony Bourdain had the glory of a following. Robin Williams had the glory of a following. What so many in this world want, and it didn't make them happy. Jesus, on the other hand, Had gained earthly glory in that moment, and he was willing to set it aside to die for a greater glory. The crowds did not appeal to Jesus, he was about his father's business. They didn't get his heart, his affections didn't pull him off mission. If Jesus were to get sucked in to the human pride, if He was to get sucked in to the praise of the crowd, He would have died and remained alone in verse 24. But He didn't. He died on mission, the mission His Father gave Him, and bore much fruit. He bore much fruit. If he dies, he would bear much fruit. Through his death, he saved and secured his bride. He must die. It has been written. And this is glorious. What other message has anything remotely close to this? The very instrument that we get the word excruciating from Cross, crucifixion, excruciating pain. In Christianity, we look to that and say, that's glorious. That's glorious. The world looks to what Jesus had, the praise of the crowd, even write confession from their mouths and say, oh, that's glorious. Not Jesus. He died. He does not remain alone. He bore much fruit. And in verse 25, this really hits home now with us. How about verse 25 and 26? Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What in the world is Jesus talking about? What's he talking about? Whoever loves his life. Can I tell you something? This really was a struggle for me. I love my life. Is that what it's talking about? What's he talking about? We need to put some definition around this. So let me give you a couple definitions of loving your life and hating life your life, starting with a definition for loving your life. Loving your life looks like this, living, living a, I got this life, I've got it, independence, independence, I don't need anything from anyone, I'll do it my way, life, sorry Bon Jovi, I'll get what I want, life. I know what makes me happy, life. What I think and what I feel is right. I know what's best for me. Living for the praise of the crowd. That is loving your life. Do you love your life? Do you not want God or anyone to get in your way? of What you want? Are you the captain of your own ship, the master of your destiny, like Nelson Mandela says? That man's done a lot of great things, but that Invictus poem is demonic. You're not the captain of your ship. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. Talk about a welcoming message to give to a hungry crowd, right? You're going to lose it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does that mean? What does that mean? First, I jumped ahead. If you love your life, you'll lose it. The Pharisees love their life. Okay, now I'm back in line here. And Andy, this is what this is what it was. Andy recognized. Remember, in 1148, the Pharisees. Just one page before, in 1148, they said this: the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their concern was their life, their way of life, their power, position, power. The Pharisees were willing to keep kill Jesus to keep their life. They loved their life. And Jesus was going to be collateral damage if they could just keep it. So they were willing to kill him for it. Jesus, on the other other hand, is willing to die to give eternal life. It's amazing. You must then, after that, a call to die and to lose your life. You must, I must hate my life in this world. Definition for hating your life. Living a, here's the definition, we are to live a I don't got this life. I need you, God, life. I am dependent, God. I'm not dependent. I am weak and I need you, God. Make me strong. Living and hating your life is knowing that my way is the wrong way and God's way is better sacrificing what I want for what God wants, sacrificing what I think will make me happy for what God says and what God has for me, submitting what I think and what I feel to what God says and what God feels. It's death to self, death to the flesh, death to sin, living a life that is joyfully okay with even delayed gratification. That's what hating your life looks like. So I want to give you good news before I give you Jesus the example. Jesus is our substitute. We have Christ for us. He is for us. Anything that He commands us to do, He did for us. In our place, perfectly. Any law given ever from God, Jesus fulfilled on our behalf. And before we're called to follow Jesus as example as being our example, we have to know that Jesus is our Savior. If you get those things mixed up, you're going to live a, a hopeless life trying to follow Jesus in His footsteps and follow the, dirt, the, the following the dirt or the, the dust of your master, and you will fail over and over again if you don't understand Jesus for you. If you just hear commands and say, be like Jesus, which we're called to do, without the hope of Jesus has done something for you, it's hopeless. The gospel message isn't live like Jesus. Although we are called to live like Jesus, you'll see here in a second. But here's what Jesus did for you. He lost his life. He was willing to die that he wouldn't remain alone. He perfectly gave his life and bore much fruit. He didn't love his life in this world. He lived as if he hated his life in this world for your sake. Because, friends, if we see this and just think, okay, I've got to do this, which we do. Like, we're called to do this. But here's the deal. I promise the cares of this world will get your heart. I promise. I don't care. Every spirit-filled believer in the world who's been walking with Jesus for years and years and years, still, at moments, their heart gets pulled to things it shouldn't be pulled towards. Their affections are on something or towards something it shouldn't be. And their love is not directed in places it should be. And the most godliest saints among us admit that willingly. Jesus did this. He's not asking us to do something he didn't already do for us. He did die. He did bear much fruit. It wasn't a purposeless death. And here's the deal. You, if you're in Christ, you are the fruit. You are the fruit of Jesus' selfless life, of him hating his life. And once we know that, if you know that, that he did bear much fruit, he didn't die hoping, he died knowing that he would save sinners. If you know that, then you're ready to hear about Jesus calling you to live in his footsteps. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus bore fruit. And it isn't just for you to pray a prayer and be saved. The fruit that he bore also was to secure people who would follow him, who would hear his words and say, Jesus, I'll follow you all the days of my life. it will, I'll stumble forward. I know that. I'm not going to do this perfectly, but my heart is yours. My life is yours. And whatever you ask me to do, whatever I see in the word, I'll repent of any sin that I'm made aware of. I'll follow you all my life. I want to honor you. That's what I want. I want to die to myself. I want to deny myself. I want to change. I want to repent. I want to love you. That's what we must do if we are followers of Jesus. Servants of Christ follow Christ. We deny ourselves. We die to ourselves. We lose our life to gain it. We hate our life in this world to keep it for eternal life. As Jesus lived, so we will follow. And friends, that's not law because we know that He did all this for us perfectly. And if we know we're secure and safe in Him, when we hear that, Here's what happens inside of us. It should. I'm going to follow you. Jesus, it's my delight to repent of my sin and to follow you. It's my delight to engage this battle. It's my delight to engage even in spiritual warfare. It's my, it's my delight to fight the enemy. And God, when it's not my delight, help me to repent that it isn't my delight. Help me, Jesus, but I'm going to follow you. I'm in this thing. And what does the last verse say? The last part of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Honor. Do you realize this? If you're in Christ. And you follow Him all the days of your life. God the Father will honor you. You have glory coming your way. It's better than the attaboy that your coach gave you when you were playing baseball when you were young or playing volleyball or cheerleading or if you don't play sports, whatever. If you don't play sports, whatever you do to get attaboys. The Father will honor you I want to tell you about a man who denied himself, just a normal, ordinary man. His name's Tom Carson. I read this last year, I believe. I want to read it again. If you deny that yourself in this world, most likely you won't get the praise from the world. If you follow Jesus in this world, you probably are not going to get honor and praise and glory and people coming alongside and saying, you're amazing. Probably not going to get that. Definitely not at work. You're just... It's not something that gets praised in this world. You're not going to get masses hanging on every word that you have to say. Probably not. This man denied himself. And he went up and he was a pastor in Canada for almost his entire ministry. And pastored churches of 15 and 20 people. Didn't get a lot of praise from the world. But as a man that knew how to repent. Let me just read you a little bit about Tom Carson. A man willing to follow Jesus. Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures. But hundreds of people in the Ottawa's and beyond testified how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-reaching farsighted, visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not a gifted administrator, but there is no text in the Bible that says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you're a good administrator. His journals have many, many entries bathed in tears of contrition, but his children and grandfathers, grandchildren remember his laughter. Only rarely did he break through his pattern of reserve and speak deeply and intimately with his children, but he modeled Christian virtues to them. He much preferred to avoid controversy than to stir things up, but his own commitments to historic confessionalism were unyielding, and in ethics, he was a man of principle. His own ecclesiastical circles were rather small and narrow, but his reading was correspondingly large and expansive. He was not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer list. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers. No announcements on television. No mention in parliament. No attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen. Vainly venting because he stopped breathing. It would never need it again. Pause. Most of your stories are like this. And we're going to follow Jesus together. And we're going to commit to doing this with each other. Repenting of sin together. And just following Jesus. And fighting for godliness and holiness. Trusting Him along the way. And you know what? For most all of us, we'll go to each other's funerals. But we're not going to get praise in this world. But we're okay to that because we're dying to self, aren't we? And although... No crowds outside the hospital in this world. No editorial comments in the papers. No announcements on television. No mention in parliament. No attention paid by the nation in his hospital room. No one by his bedside. Even his kids had gone. His son Don had went to go to the house for 15 minutes. And his dad passed away alone. No one by his bedside. Only the quiet hiss of oxygen. Vainly venting because he stopped breathing and would never need it Again. But hear this. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. And Dad won entrance into the only throne room that matters. Not because he was a good man or a great man, he was, after all, a most ordinary pastor, but because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him who he longed to hear say, Well done. Good and faithful servant, enter in to the joy of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. When I read whoever loses his life, loves his life, loses it, I don't want to love my life wrongly in this world. I want to hate my life, my way my preferences. I want to deny myself. I don't want to be the Pharisee, nor do I want any of us in here to be the Pharisee who sacrifices you or plays lip service to you or puts palm branches down at the beginning of the week only to say crucify you later when things aren't going your way. I want to follow you. So God... Help us, if there's anybody in here, and just a simple practical point, if there's sin that you're aware of in your life, the Holy Spirit is maybe opening your blind eye to sin in your life right now. Here's what this message practically looks like. Pray, maybe with somebody right next to you, and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm living for my way and what I want, and I need to repent of that, and I need to die myself and hate my life in this world because I'm wrong. And I don't want to lose my life because that's not what followers of you do. And if there's anybody in here who's been on this treadmill of performance, maybe their entire lives, just trying to follow Jesus, but never resting in Jesus, I pray that there be rest this morning. And just be rest. Just, oh, Jesus, thank you that all the commands you gave me, you did for me. You did for me that I could have rest and that I could gladly just follow you. So help us this morning, Holy Spirit, pinpoint those areas that we need to change. And I trust that you will. God, I thank you that the promise is that one day we'll stand before you and hear these words. Hey, Jared, welcome. Welcome. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in. This is for you. I love you. That's enough. It really is. It's our joy to sing to you.